For as long as we have lived, for as long as we have known, love has carried us. You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Genesis Covenant Church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. You can find out more about us at www.genesiscov.org. Enjoy the teaching in it together. Morning, friends. The reading today is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I don't think, friends, that I need to deal with the question of when all this is going to happen. You know as well as I that the day of the Master's coming can't be posted on our calendars. He won't call ahead and make an appointment any more than a burglar would. About the time everybody's walking around complacently, congratulating each other, we've sure got it made, now we can take it easy, suddenly everything will fall apart. It's going to come as suddenly and inescapably as birth pangs to a pregnant woman. But friends, you're not in the dark, so how could you be taken off guard by any of this? You are sons of light, daughters of day. We live under wide open skies and know where we stand. So let's not sleepwalk through life like those others. Let's keep our eyes open and be smart. People sleep at night and get drunk at night, but not us. Since we're creatures of day, let's act like it. Walk out into the daylight sober, dressed up in faith, love, and the hope of salvation. God didn't set us up for an angry rejection, but for salvation by our master, Jesus Christ. He died for us, a death that triggered life. Whether we're awake with the living or asleep with the dead, we're alive with him. So speak encouraging words to one another. Build up hope so you'll all be together in this. No one left out, no one left behind. I know you're already doing this. Just keep on doing it. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Genesis. Uh, I am, I'm, I'm excited to be here this morning with you. Uh, a couple of things, uh, a couple of stories to start. Uh, this week, driving in the car, we have three little kids. Nash is five, will soon be six. Mila is fo- uh, four uh, and going on 14. And Knox is two. So we have five, four, and two-year-old. They like to sit right next to each other in the back seat. You can kind of see them in the little parent mirror. Uh, and lately, our daughter has been into this uh, kid's TV show called Spirit. It's about a horse uh, and like her friend and anyways, she just loves it. And she looked up, looked up at us kind of in the rearview mirror. She said, I want to be a cowgirl when I get older. And we said, you can do that. We'll, you know, we'll find a way. We'll figure it out. And she's got these pink little cowgirl boots. Uh, and the best part was that about four minutes later, her youngest brother, Knox, who is two and a half, looked up at us, and he had something he wanted to tell us. And I think he wanted to participate in the story that Mila was painting, and he said, I want to be a cow when I grow up. <laughs> and so we looked at him, and we said, we don't know if there's boots for that, but uh, we, we can maybe help you. I don't know. Um, and the other thing that happened to me this week, uh, if you don't know me and if I've not met you, uh, please say, say hi after the service, but I'm the church planter in residence here at Genesis, uh, which means uh, I get to take the beautiful beginning of what we've, we have here at Genesis and what we value and who we are 
and bring it to the East Metro, where me and Kate call home. And there's a troop of travelers joining us and people that we have yet to know that will come out of the woodwork to join us in this new beginning. And the work of church planting, um, I wouldn't have called myself an anxious person before saying yes to this. Uh, but if you interviewed, like, it's kind of like the dark night of the soul, you interview those closest to you when you're going through a season of extreme, like, difficulty and pressure and all these things, and they say, well, how would, how would you describe Aaron? And you'd be like, please don't answer that. Um, <laughs> but what, I, what I've had to face into is that as I've thought about who's coming, how many will be there, uh, do we have enough money? Do we have enough people? All these questions of like, almost questions of like scarcity. I've realized, I'm like, oh my gosh, I need and want to be in control of so much in my life. And so this week I met with someone who I hadn't seen in five years. Uh, we used to go to church together. He was a volunteer for me at another place. And we sat across from each other at the Good Earth in Roseville. And he wanted to tell me his story of the last five years. And it's a story of divorce and heartache and kids not, and some of his kids not talking to him. Um, it's a story where he felt abandoned by his church, where in his moment of greatest need, no one showed up. And so I wanted to see him. I wanted to look him in the eye. I wanted to say, would, would you share your story with me? And somehow, could I, could I just be with you in this? And I, I called Weens after, uh, after I'd met with this person. And he, he, Weens is like, hey man, what's up? And uh, then I was silent because I was like finding the words, couldn't find the words. I could only find tears. And I was like, I've just been given a gift. He's like, what, what does that mean? Tell me more. And I said, today meeting this person in, in the hour of their greatest need, I, re I remembered why I'm doing this. And so as much as we want to hit all the benchmarks of having enough people and having enough resources, we can get lost in questions that actually aren't the most important questions. And then we, we give up a few hours of our time and we remember why we're here. So this morning, um, we're, we're continuing the story that, that Deva started last week. And so we are in 1 Thessalonians. And I want to I briefly summarize, like we're in chapter 5, David preached out of, beautifully out of chapter 4, and I want to give you some language as we start of what the first three chapters of this letter to the church of Thessalonica sounded like. So let's pretend, let's imagine for a moment that we are that church and we're going to read this letter out loud together and I'm just going to highlight some of the language. So here's the letter. It's from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. He says, Genesis, God's grace and peace to you. We thank God every time we think of you. Day and night, we pray for you. We see your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. And so real quick, when you think about work 
labor and patience. What does that sound like? Suffering. Work. So all of a sudden we have this picture in the beginning of the letter of, I see your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope. And, and already we're entering a story where there's something required of us. And then Paul continues to write to us. Let's put ourselves in that spot. And he says, when the message of hope came to you, Genesis, something happened. It wasn't just words. You started to pay attention. You paid careful attention to the way you lived, and you started imitating the master. He says, the word is out, people. People are looking to you. So at this point, we're feeling pretty good. Um, I'm like, well, Paul, you keep preaching, son. You preach it. Um, he says, your lives are echoing the master. And I'm like, mm-hmm, you bet it is. He says, you are the message. Amen, Paul. And he continues and he says, you know, Paul is separated from the Thessalonians at this time. He says, we're, we are homesick for you, but our hearts are with you. And so for all the trouble that, that lies ahead, remember that you're one of us. Remember that you are part of this thing that's happening in the world. And so if, if we're receiving that letter, uh, we're, we're excited about the work we're already doing. We're excited. To, maybe, maybe Paul will answer some more of our questions that we have. And so, you know, we're gathering around this bonfire or this community room. And he's, we're like excited. He's answering our questions about what it means to pursue a holy life. To live with self-control. To be pure. To honor God by how we're living. And then he starts talking about those that have, that have died. And, and, a, and a hope that we have for a someday. And then we say, let's, let's turn the page. I know, I just know he's going to tell us when Jesus is coming back. But then we read the first verse of chapter 5 and we turn the page. And he just says it out loud right there. I don't think, friends, I need to deal with the question of when all this is going to happen. All right, so how are we feeling at this point, friends? All play, you can answer. How are we feeling? Disappointed. Confused. Have you ever had the wind knocked out of you? That like stomach tightness, can't breathe, and then all of a sudden you're like making all these funny noises like... <laughs> I mean, you could try that on your own. It's really fun. Uh, but this is us as the church. We're, we want to know. The early church became overly and extremely occupied with the when question of Christ's return. They were like, surely before my generation passes by, surely we will see the day. Surely I can stop storing up spam in my basement for the end times. Like Jesus is coming back. And so they became obsessed to a point with this question of when. Paul, tell us when. We want to know. And so if, have you ever been on a road trip with like a small child? What is the question they keep asking? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Dad, are we there yet? 
Like when Kate and I were first married, we took a road trip to Seattle and back, like 5,000 miles. Not one time did we ask, are we there yet? But we tried to go to Duluth and we're like stopping 47 times at, you know, and we're like, circle back to Toby's, need another donut. And I said, kids, all right, for the love of all that is holy, no, we're not there yet. And if you don't stop asking, we may never get there. Because A, I may just decide to drive off this bridge, or B, I will leave you at the next rest stop. And I will continue, and I'll just know. We'll get there when we get there. So Paul, though, he's much more gracious, gracious than I am. Seems to be more level-headed than me, but he got to ride horses, and he's never been in a Honda Pilot with three kids wigging out on electronics. So... <laughs> So when the early church asks, are we there yet? Can we expect to arrive sometime soon? Paul instead says, well, that's a great question, church. I'm so glad you asked. Um, and he begins by laying out the hope we have in Jesus. That's a little bit of what we covered last week. That yes, we grieve, but we do not grieve the same way because of the hope we have. This is the promise that we rise to new life and that not even death has the final word. But then Paul inserts a, however, I don't think I need to deal with the question of when. And so I wonder, what is Paul doing here? Perhaps he's holding up a mirror Perhaps he's getting us and them to think beyond what right now they think is the most important question. Paul's actually, I think, hoping to invite them into a question of either, even greater significance. And the question is this. Instead of how can I escape, we should be asking how can I participate? Instead of asking, how can I escape, we should be asking, how might I participate? So Paul challenges their consumption with the question because it's keeping them from something more important, something different. And so you say, well, the church I grew up in always said the most important thing was heaven. Well, welcome to church again. Let's give ourselves the space to explore a different possibility. So I wrote something this week, and it's a short story about us. So I'd love to share it with you. We like Jesus, us evangelicals, we really do. You think I'm joking, but I love him. I think you do too. We talk about how radical he was. Talk about it over a pint or some gin, but we're stuck. And here's what I mean. We've grown up with a partial message. Only part of the story, which almost always begins in Genesis 3 instead of Genesis 1. We ignored delight and went right to the curse, and we've done our very best since then to solve it, to fix it. 
And in doing so, we've spent less and less and less time talking about tending the garden and more and more and more time talking about how to get out of here. So for us, and many of us, God has become a train driver, screaming all aboard on the next train to heaven. Say this prayer and sometime before you hop on, and we can leave this barren wasteland called earth. And so we did. We said the prayer, we boarded the train, and then we just sat there. We literally sat there. And as the train starts moving through life, here we are, sitting on our free pass to heaven. At first, it's really great. It really is. And it actually even stays that way for a while. But we notice there are big windows on the train, and the shades are drawn closed, and we don't even think to ask permission to open them. We keep to ourselves and we ignore the world we once occupied. This rail car is our new home for now. But one day, in the middle of a group of us, we're feeling quite righteous and important. The conductor opened all the shades of all the big windows. And initially, our eyes cringed from the light we seemed to have forgotten. But after a while, our eyes adjusted and we began to see. We saw mountains and rivers, birds and wild animals, beautiful flowers and beautiful faces. We saw joy as people danced and we saw sorrow as people wept. And we realized that our hearts felt drawn into engaging with this beauty and this chaos and this mess. But for so long, we've been told that the main point of the story was to leave, so we stayed seated. And we ignored the inclination to press our childlike noses to the glass to see what lies beyond the train seat. And as our curiosity rises within us, we silently scold ourselves for not being content with the blessing of heaven. And so we sit still like good little girls and good little boys and we pat ourselves on the back for our patience and our ability to snuff out our deepest desire for adventure and participation. And we say we're really doing it. We're living the partial story we've been told. We're waiting to leave. But like all good little girls and good little boys, we got restless. The conductor seemed to open the windows of the train for all these stunning moments. Moments of great beauty, moments of mystery, and moments of heartache. There were sunrises and shooting stars, weddings and funerals, births of children and losses of children. We saw beautiful things. We saw heart-wrenching things. We saw things that gave us butterflies deep in our bellies and things that made us weep and feel alive. But we never spent much time talking about what we saw, and so we stayed seated, stuck between two worlds. And every so often, the conductor stops the train for a long time, none of us really knew why. At first, we thought maybe the train needed more fuel. There was something wrong that needed to be fixed. Maybe God needed a nap after all that conducting. But the beautiful part of stopping was that every time we did, new people would get on the train, and we'd have these wild celebrations as they told us of the new life they'd found in Jesus. And so we carried on like this for years, staying seated, 
not asking many questions, staring out the window and dreaming, and stopping occasionally to welcome some new friends. But all that changed when I saw something I couldn't, couldn't ignore. I passed by a gentle old man I hadn't met before. He had these sparkling blue eyes that were full of tender mercy. They reminded me of Lake Superior, my childhood playground. He seemed to know something I didn't, and he smiled at me as I passed by. Sensing my curious heart, he grabbed my hand as I passed by, and he simply held it. I stopped, not knowing how to, how to respond. It didn't feel forceful, but it felt significant. My eyes were still down at this point, and so he squeezed my hand. And as I looked up in his blue eyes, they were waiting for me. He cracked a sly smile and pulled my ear to his mouth, and he whispered, There's more. And as I pulled away, tears welling in my eyes, he pointed to his boots. They were caked with mud. What? What? Mud from, from where? Oh my, mud from out there. So all those new people, the new life, the stopping the train, my mind was racing, my heart was overwhelmed. And the only words I could muster to him was, who? Like, who, who gave you permission to leave the train? And he held back a little laugh, mostly to save my own fragileness in that moment. And he responded, well, the conductor, of course. See, the thing is, the conductor, he waits for a group of us in one of the rail cars we discovered when we could no longer just sit still and wait. So the first night we showed up, he was in there waiting. And at first we apologized, but he told us he'd been waiting there all along. And he tells us stories of beauty and new beginnings. And he talks about tending the garden and looking after lost sheep. He reminded us of all the people he so desperately loves that are trying to find a place of, of belonging. And so he does this crazy thing where he feeds us bread and wine and then he sends us out to look for them, to care for them, to be gentle with them. And sometimes they come back to the train with us and we celebrate. But sometimes they just need us to sit with them for a long, long time before they're ready. And he paused for a brief second and he said, you know, I don't, I don't always make it back to the train before it leaves for the next stop. He said, I often forsake my spot because the conductor, he keeps reminding me that the adventure and the people I'm called to are out there. I know the train will stop here again and that I'll always have a spot. But I just can't get enough of bringing new people in. So church, when will Jesus come back? I don't think that's the most important question. For us, I think the most important question to wrestle with this morning is have you found yourself sitting stale on a train for too long? 
Have you stopped dreaming dreams about what's out there and what you might find and the life that might be waiting for you? Because the conductor feeds us bread and wine and sends us out. And he says it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. Back in 2008, I went to Grand Rapids, Michigan for a, a conference. And I heard a speaker from Ireland who was a theologian, a poet. He called himself a pyrotheologian. Uh, I wasn't quite sure how to wrap my head around that. I wasn't sure if he wanted to burn up everything I already believed or just light me on fire and send me out into the world. But I couldn't, I couldn't turn away from what he was saying. And so I'm in the upper balcony, feeling like miles and miles away from him on the stage. And yet I'm, I'm tuned in, I'm listening, I have to pay attention because of his awesome accent. And he said something, he's like, I was at a, a college giving a talk, and I opened it up for some questions after, and some of the students really wanted to stump me. So they said, hey, Peter, we heard you deny the resurrection of Jesus. He said, well, I wanted to make them squirm a little bit, so I just sat still and didn't say a word for a while. And then I said, you know what? You're right. I do. I deny the resurrection of Jesus. And I, I'm, I'm at this point like, when are the bodyguards going to come out and just kind of escort him off the stage? Like, this is, you know. And then he said, I let them sit there in that tension for a few moments. And then I continued. And I said, every time I don't see my neighbor as myself, I deny the resurrection. Every time I don't clothe or feed or see, I deny the resurrection. And at this point, I'm a mess. And he said, you know what? And every time I do those things, I affirm it. Every time I do those things, I affirm it. And I made, I made a beeline for the door. And the friends that were with me were like, you know, thinking I was like losing my mind. And I was in the sense that someone gave me language for what I was most hungry for, was a story that I could participate in. Where I could look out those big train windows and say God was inviting me to those vulnerable, difficult, messy, full of life, glorious spaces. And I'd, I'm not sure I've been the same since then. And so this morning we have just this intro from Paul. Where friends, I'm not sure that's the best question we could be asking. We don't have a lot of time to go in through all else that is there. But friends, you are children of the light. And on the way over this morning, I was listening to a song called Lean On, O King Eternal. 
And the refrain is, let your kingdom come right here on earth as it is in heaven. And I think the mistake I've made, and maybe you can relate to me, is that for so long I've skipped over the right here. And I've said, God, I can't wait till your kingdom comes. God, I can't wait for you to show back up and make things all right. And the little nudge that I felt this morning on the drive over was that the right here was me looking in the mirror and remembering that I've been asked to get my boots all full of mud with this gentle old man I met and leave the train. And so Genesis, the invitation, the wrestling for this morning is for us to ask a new question. What does right here mean for you? Does it mean your family? Does it mean your coworkers? Does it mean your friends? Does it mean the stranger you pass by every day on the way to the office? What does right here mean? Because you already have a seat on the train. That's not going anywhere. But what's waiting for you is this beautiful picture to participate and not just wait around to escape. So friends, we live under wide open skies and we know where we stand. So let's not sleepwalk through life. No one left out. No one left behind. That is the good, good work we get to do. We're going to move into a time of 60 seconds of silence. And then we'll move into the prayers of response.